A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted, polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show you favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For the rising of the sun, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what is the weariness in this? What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Amen. You may be seated this morning as Ralph brings the message. So what are we going to do with that text? We're going to preach it. Because we just had really some wonderful, wonderful worship. You know, I love it when the worship team's up here, but I also love this this morning this really kind of communicated to my own heart, and that was one of the best worship experiences I've had. Now, all my elders have left me. They heard I was going to preach, and so they all left, went somewhere else. Something's happening here. We're okay. Uh, but Chris is here, and they just came back from Florida. And were you in Punta Gorda? Yeah. Uh, but you flew into Fort Lauderdale. Okay, the best church I ever had in 41 years was just south of Fort Lauderdale in a place called Hollywood. And so I'm going to talk about that a little bit today at the end of the sermon by way of application. But uh, so I went from the best experience in ministry to the worst. I'm going to talk about that as part of the essence of the message that we'll be sharing today. But you heard that he said that people are very happy in Florida, and I was happy in Florida. Uh, I was much younger, but you know what Florida means, don't you? F-L-O-R-I-D-A. Here's what it is. Fun-loving oldsters living in decadent affluence. So when, when somebody said that, there was somebody else said, well, I'm from California. And somebody said, you know what California means? come and live in Florida. <laughs> All right. Great to share with you this morning, and uh, I've been thinking about, about this for quite some time. If I have uh, 
several opportunities to preach. I think there's one scheduled in May. I'm going to stay in Malachi, unless you're all sleeping at the end of the message, and I might change it. But I'm going to stay in Malachi. I'm going to preach through Malachi for the next three or four times I have an opportunity. And I think that this is a fantastic book uh, in the Word of God. Somebody here, I don't know who it was, if anybody's here today, that asked me the question, how do you, Ralph, how do you prepare your sermon? And I thought I might just share that with you today for a specific reason. Uh, how do you prepare your sermon? I really asked myself three questions, and this is what I want for you. When you get out of bed tomorrow morning and you pick up the Bible and say, I'm going to have my, my devotions from the Word, and then you have the coffee cup or tea or orange juice or milk, I can't imagine anything but coffee. That goes with the Bible so well. Uh, you, can, you can do the same thing that I'm doing in sermon preparation. If I take the simplest, most down-to-earth form of it, when you pick up your Bible tomorrow morning and you have like five days reading on your little reading thing, uh, why not do what I do? Not that you're going to preach it, although you can preach it to somebody, but why don't you ask these three questions? What? The first question is, what does it say? The second question is, so what? So what, if that's what it says? And the third question is, now what? What do I do about that tomorrow morning? Tomorrow morning is Monday morning. What do I do about it? I'm going to go to work. How do I apply that to my life? And if you're a preacher, of course, you're going to say, how does that relate to me and how does it relate to the Congo? You're the Congo. Uh, so I wanted to share that because you can do that. Why don't you apply that to your five days uh, of Bible reading that we have in the message application thing and uh, just do that. I think that would be tremendous to help you to get at what the passage is, is really talking about. We're going to look at Malachi. Chris had uh, shared a, a passage in Malachi. I think it was Malachi 3, but he said Malachi means my messenger, so you know that. The theme of the book is God's unrequited love. What do you mean, unrequited? Well, when my kids call me on the phone, at the end of the conversation, they will often say, Dad, love you, Dad. And then I will respond by saying, love you back, kiddo. Okay? God was saying to these people, I love you. They weren't loving him back. It's unrequited love is the theme of the book. I'm not going to deal with verses 1 to 5 today because that's a message in itself. What I want to share with you is the essence of disobedient worship. We had obedient worship today, but Malachi is going to talk about disobedient worship. All right, Malachi came on the scene. He was a contemporary of uh, Nehemiah, right? And he made reforms for the people. Things, uh, they had revival. There was actually something going on. The wall was torn down. And so here you have this fantastic guy coming in who has a vision to get things straightened out. And there were reforms. Great things were happening. Re revival, really, reforms. And, uh, and Nehemiah then left. In chapter 13, verse 6 of, uh, of Nehemiah, he says, during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. And then out of those reforms, there is a deterioration. There is a downfall. There is a backsliding. 
I like to call it the post-revival blondes. So when Nehemiah returned, he saw that the leadership was in a backslidden condition. The priests were failing. The people were failing. And what happened was uh, Tobiah the Ammonite occupied the rooms in the temple. Who were those rooms for? They were for the priest, correct? That was how the priest survived and served the people and earned their living. So Nehemiah comes in, and he, he goes in, he takes Tobiah the Ammonite out of the temple, and he throws him out of the temple, and he throws all his clothes out of the temple, and then he ceremoniously cleanses the temple. But they were also breaking the Sabbath. There was also mixed marriages. In fact, one of the sons of the priest uh, married the daughter of Sanballat. My wife was always quick to tell me, make sure you say Sanballat. Don't say Sanballat. He's not French. But Sanballat was the guy, okay? And he was so upset that Nehemiah pulled their hair out. Now, that's not a form of church discipline I would uh, recommend for today. In fact, we could probably only do that in half of you, you know. But, but that's what was happening. So during this time, Malachi the prophet comes on the scene to give God's message. Now, a lot of people don't know much about this little, little four-chaptered book in this part of the Word of God. What they do know is that there is something in Malachi that says something about bringing all the tithes into the storehouse, right? And that's, of course, the Southern Baptist text there. They, they love that. You, you would probably not go into Southern Baptist church without hearing somewhere, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. But I think the varied themes of Malachi are very important for the church today. One great theme of Malachi that we'll touch upon is that there is a word here against formalism and dead ritualism. Just going through the motions, but no heart. You never do that during worship. I hope we never do that during worship. We're supposed to express a heart to God. So... The dead formalism and ritualism, it just, the book just rails against the perfunctory exercise of going through religious exercises, and that's a word we need to hear today. Very important. Malachi teaches that God is concerned not with your external deeds, but your character, what you are when you're alone, what you are in the dark. Malachi talks also about the subject of uh, Marriage and divorce. In fact, the longest passage in the Old Testament on, on marriage and divorce is in Malachi chapter 2. Whenever I'm doing a wedding, and I thought I was going to do one in, in, in April, but they just decided to do it in Las Vegas instead, and they're not going to fly me out there. But, but it's interesting. Uh, the longest passage is in Malachi, I think it's chapter 2, verse 10, where you have the clearest definition of marriage in the Bible. And so I will always tell people, Malachi 2.10 says marriage is a covenant of companionship. And so I will tell them anything in your relationship that disturbs that companionship has to be dealt with ruthlessly. Deal with it. Okay? So that's a great passage. Another thing the book talks about is giving. 
And that's in chapter 3. And that's wonderful because it says, God says, here's what I'll do if you're faithful to me. I will open up the windows of heaven. And I will pour you out a blessing so much so that you won't be able to contain it. And that's not all God says. I will also rebuke the devourer in your life. What a great, great passage that is. I was sitting on the... And by the way, if I'm preaching through Malachi and I come to chapter 3, I'm going to have to deal with that. People always say preachers talk too much about money. Matter of fact, on the tennis court during the summer, the guy that runs the tennis uh, group of about 40 guys here is sitting on the sidelines in a chair because he has some back problems. And uh, he also has some vision problems. So somebody said something, and I was on the court right here beside him. Somebody said something. I don't remember what it was. But, but he responded like this. I'm not going to church. All they ever talk about is money. They just want my money. I didn't say much. I said, Chuck, we do talk about other things. Because he knows I'm a pastor. And I said, you know, it's interesting that Jesus talked a lot about money as well. So you have that. Another area uh, that Malachi speaks of is the problem of skepticism. We have no skeptics here, do we? Skepticism, you find these people saying, what good does it do to serve God? So what? if we serve him. So what if we don't? That's in Malachi. Well, the book is divided into two parts, the sins of the priest and the sins of the people. And it's interesting that the order is that. And, oh, I see they're putting it up on the screen. I forgot to even call for it. They're on the wall. The sins of the priest and the sins of the people because the order is like priest, like people. What the priests were was a determining factor in what the people became. So I've entitled this message this morning, Excellent Service for an Excellent God. And I've decided to preach on Malachi and sort of give a testimony as to how this book of the Bible has really had an influence on my life and changed the direction of my entire life and ministry. So I'm going to share some of that with you, but I'm going to share that at the end as we teach the passage because as I look back over the years of my ministry, there were many uh, uh, people, problems, and passages that have impacted my life in a significant way. And I consider what I am going to share with you today as the single passage of Scripture that perhaps has had the most telling impact on my life and ministry. And there really are four sins that this book is talking about. Marriage, money, uh, ministry, money, and mediocrity. Marriage, <coughs> money, ministry, and I'm going to talk about the last one today, mediocrity. And I want to talk about that last one because it begins with disrespect. Uh, and what began with the disrespect of the priest filtered down to the people. Because what's in the pulpit determines what's in the pew. Somebody said, if you got a, if you got a mist in the pulpit, you got a fog in the pew. If the pastor has a heart for souls, it's likely people will catch that vision. If the pastor is missionary-minded, more than likely the people will be. 
So Malachi is going to indict first of all the priest, and then he's going to go on to indict the people. So I know what you're thinking. You're safe today. He's talking about the pastors and the elders here at the church. He's going to talk about the priest. It doesn't apply to you. Uh, I think I'll make it apply before we're done, okay? So it begins with this. In verses 6 to 9, you, you have this... Uh, disrespect of the priest. In verses 9 to 14, you have God's disapproval. So I want to talk to you about the principle of respect, because in verse 6, he starts with this basic principle of respect. And I want you to notice this. He doesn't command it. He assumes it. Uh, he doesn't say, honor my name, because the whole principle of respect is assumed. And it begins with a basic proverb. Here it is. A son honors his father. You with me? I can hardly see you guys out there. You know, those lights are so bright. I wonder how Chris gets used to this. A son honors his father. Most of you would know, if you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, that uh, this is the fifth commandment. Commandment number five says, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's Exodus 20, right? So if you look at the Ten Commandments, they are in two sections. And the first section commands you to meet your responsibility to God, and the second commands you to meet your responsibility in the area of cheating, adultery, stealing, lying, but before all that comes this, honor your father and your mother. And that's really a bridge between your responsibility to God and your responsibility to the people. That commandment is so important that it is repeated again in Ephesians chapter 6 where it says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And it says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long on, and I'm sorry for the translation, I do not think it's correct, that your days may be long on the earth. Many have determined from that conclusion that children who obey their parents live longer than those who do not. Generally, that's true. I don't have young kids anymore, but we, we're always playing ball somewhere. So if, with young kids... Uh, playing ball in my backyard, and I, if I were to say to them, look, guys, uh, if that ball goes down the sidewalk and out onto St. Lawrence Avenue, Route 562, the Bordertown Pike, do not chase it. Come in and tell me. I will go and get it for you. Do not chase it, and if a car hits it and breaks it, I'll buy you another one. It's likely they would live longer if they obeyed me than if they didn't. But that's not what Exodus 20 says. It says that your days may be long in the land of Palestine. And so scholars believe that when they translated that in the New Testament, they mistakenly translated that thy days may be long on the earth. And it should be that thy days may be long on the land. Because the basic principle is this. No nation. No nation will long endure if the children do not have respect for parents. If there is no respect for parents, there is no respect for any authority, that nation may be on the downward skids. 
I don't know, is it over in, I didn't look this up, Second Timothy chapter 4 or something, it says that in the latter days, men will be boastful, proud, arrogant, lovers of themselves, not lovers of God. And then there's a little phrase in there, disobedient to parents. Remember that? It's there. So God is saying here, look, honor your father and your mother that you may stay in the land of Palestine, which the Lord your God has given you, that you may live there as a nation and not be disenfranchised and carried away captive. Honor your father and your mother that you may stay in the land of Palestine. Disrespect is a slam on the name and the reputation of the God that you're called to serve. Can I steal, borrow, or use something from YouTube that uh, actually is a demonstration of disrespect? Can we play that? I think we got the point. I had some friends over New Year's Eve, and pretty, pretty spirits, pretty spiritual people. And I played this. At least you laughed a little bit. <laughs> they saw it as a unbelievable sign of disrespect, and I see that as that as well. His name is Matteo. He was three years old. First of all, I would have never been able to debate like that with my mother if I was that old. Terrific debater, I guess. That's the future. But I, if I had said to my mother, her name is Florence. She's 95 right now. If I had said to her, listen to me, Florence, listen to me, or I did what my dad does, Flo, honey, 
See, you call your mother by your first name. Uh, I would have been slapped. Good. And her favorite, her favorite phrase was, you either listen to me or I'll break your neck. Now, I don't, actually don't recommend that as a child-rearing tactic. My wife will tell you I was raised by wolves. Uh, and of course, we think this is cute, but, but so mom takes the three-year-old, I think when he's a five-year-old, to Ellen DeGeneres, and she rewards him with 150 or 300 cupcakes or something like that. So uh, I use this illustration because it's almost exactly what we have in Malachi. God says something like, I've loved you, and the people respond. What you talking about? Where and where and have you loved us? We don't feel your love, you know. And seven times in Malachi, you have this point counterpoint approach to the discussion, and uh, and they're arguing with God. I don't remember whether it was uh, Willis Willis on Family Ties used to always say, "What you talking about?" You know. Well, this is the approach. I'm not going to highlight those, but that would be something for you to look at in the scriptures yourself. I traced through seven times. Seven times, God says this, and they argue, and they debate. They do not hear what God is really saying. So, so you know, you, you, they debate everything that God says. And, and whenever God says something negative, actually this uh, little... Thing. I think I only took about a minute and 20 seconds on the clip. It's actually two minutes and 40 seconds if you listen to it all. But that's enough to, to make the point. So, a son honors his father and a servant honors his master. I'm still in verse 6. God goes on to say, where's my honor if I'm a father? And if I'm a master, where's my respect? If I'm a master... Where is my respect? Um, in Exodus 4, 21 to 23, do we have that one? There it is. Look at that. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If he refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That's quite a, quite a statement up there. So Israel is the son of God. And a son honors his father, his God. And then he says, if I'm a master, where's my respect? Where did he get that? Exodus 24, verse 3. You have that one there? There it is, 3 and 4. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord uh, and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, here it is, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will do. All that the, uh, we will do. All that you say, we will do. They entered into a contract, and that was called a suzerainty treaty. Uh, better known as a vassal master treaty. There were a number of those treaties that were discovered, and the whole Mosaic Covenant was based on that arrangement. So if a king would go in and vanquish a people, 
they would enter into a covenant, and this is what the people would say, all that you say, we will do. That was a suzerainty treaty. That was a covenant. That's why in the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, anybody know what the Fourth Commandment is? Keep the Sabbath, right? Has more space than any of the others. The law of the Sabbath has more space than any of the others. Uh, some people make a great deal of that, and they say, well, you see, that shows that if you really love the Lord, you worship on Saturday and not on Sunday, and you keep that fourth commandment because there is more space given to that than any of the other commandments. Well, I happen to worship on Sunday mostly because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the practice of the early church. But Romans 14 says this, who are you to judge another man's servant? Who are you? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one man regards one day above another, another man regards every day alike. So, significant point. Let each man be fully persuaded in his own mind, and each one of you shall give account of himself to God. Just make sure. I had an aunt that was a Seventh-day Adventist. It didn't bother me that she worshiped on Saturday, uh, I just wanted to make sure that she understood that there is a distinction need to be made between law and grace, between the old covenant and the new covenant. And uh, my sister, uh, my baby sister, who's seven years younger than me, who was supposed to be here today, that had something come up in the family. She worships on Monday evening at Calvary Church in Lancaster. You know what? She's not lost. She's a follower of Jesus. She's on her way to heaven. So the point of this is not if you really love the Lord, you will worship him on Saturday, the Sabbath day, and not Sunday. Do you know why it is? Now listen closely. Because in this treaty, there was always some sign, just like circumcision was the covenant of uh, Abraham. So here, the seventh day was the sign of that covenant. Now all of a sudden it makes sense when you read the New Testament and the Jews or the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus because he healed somebody on the Sabbath day. Do you understand the significance of that? They thought the Lord was thereby defiling the whole covenant of Moses. They thought that Christ defiled it when he healed on the Sabbath day. What happened was they entered into this treaty and when they entered into this treaty, they made God their master, and they were the vassals, and that was the sign of the covenant. Malachi was thinking of that when he says, if I am your master, where's my respect? So you have two great theological concepts. First of all, Israel is the son, God is the father. Secondly, Israel is the servant, and God is the master. Let's move on. Look at verse 6. People just... They, they talk back to God with disrespect, and they say, uh, okay, God, what are you talking about? Wherein have we despised your name? Where's the sin? What are you talking about, God? And God says in verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? God says, by saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? 
what were they doing? They were displaying gross disrespect for God by offering him crippled sacrifices, blemished sacrifices, which were contrary to the word of God. Leviticus 20, 22, uh, 20 to 25. I'm not going to read this, but we'll put it up on the screen. There's the text. And uh, Deuteronomy 15, 21 says the same thing. So let me say it again, just to highlight it. No blemished sacrifices. So the people would bring these. And the priest would say, ah, don't worry about it. That's all right. We're just going to burn it by fire on the altar anyway. What difference does it make? So it has a running sore or eczema or is blind or lame. So what? It's going to be burned. Let's just offer it to the Lord anyway. And they are showing gross disrespect to God. Now I want you to notice how in parallel with human relationships we would not do the same thing. So Malachi 1.8 says, why don't you just take that and offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with it? Now, you need to know that at this time in their history, the Jews were under the Persian, and every district of the Persian Empire had a governor. That governor was called a satrap. And so he says, why don't you just take the sacrifice that you're offering to God, take it and offer it to the Persian governor, the satrap, see what he thinks of you, why he'd boot you out of there real quick, never want to see you again. Think of the, the turkey given to the President of the United States Thanksgiving. The best you could find. This is the disrespect of the priest. Guys, is it getting a little heavy for you? We're just about through here on the text. But we also have the disapproval of God. If we read verses 9 and 10, which begins God's disapproval of them, here it is. This is a disapproval by God. Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there one among you who would just shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God says, why don't you just shut the temple down? Just shut the gate, shut the doors. I'm not accepting this offering. And verse 11 is the logic of this. Please don't miss it. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, God says, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Do you, do you get what God is saying here? God is saying, do you think that I need the offerings, the paltry, miserable offerings of a tiny remnant people like you, when one day there's going to come a millennium, when one day my name will be through all the earth and people from all over the world will worship my name, do you think that I need your paltry little sacrifices when one day the whole world will sacrifice to me? 
Of course not. Just shut the gates of the temple. By the way, this is where Isaac Watts got uh, the inspiration to write that great hymn, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun doth its successive journeys run, his kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. It comes right from Malachi 1.11. And if that's so, do you think he needs blemish sacrifices from us today, a, a paltry nod of the head? Folks, this is disobedient worship not following through with God's commands, not following through with what he requires of us. Hmm. All right, verses 12 to 14, this is it. They say, my, how tiresome it is. You disdainfully sniff at it. Now, I don't know about, I get convicted about that one because if you've ever been a pastor, and uh, Chris would recognize this as well. But you had to preach Sunday morning, and then I had to preach Sunday night, and then Wednesday night in prayer meeting, they would expect we, we want something from Scripture, even though it should, should be a prayer meeting. Usually ended up in, in another Bible study, unfortunately. It should have been a prayer meeting. And then Sunday morning, you have a newcomer's class. And so you've got those things, and then you have to do a two-minute message every day on the... Uh, on the phone, and at the end of the message, and the two-minute message, you say, uh, this message is sponsored, sponsored by Lester's Diner, 250 State Road 84, Fort Lauderdale. Eat with less and pay less. Uh, and my, my wife and my kids say, how do, you, how do you write a term paper every week like that? Probably more than one. So, you know, I'm glad that we've streamlined things in today's ministry picture. We're thankful for that. Uh, uh, but to be honest with you, just one other thing. When I think of the priest in Malachi's day, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic. I wouldn't want to be a priest because we tend to think of the priest in his lovely garments and his beautiful robe and his precious stones and his high robe. But you know what it would be like to be an ordinary priest? You'd be running a butcher shop. A slaughterhouse. I mean, it was miserable. All day long, killing animals, blood around your ankles, skinning animals, getting rid of intestines, carrying it outside the camp, burning it up. It was a mess. And so I can understand why they might say, oh, another day of running this slaughterhouse, how tiresome it is. You, you disdainfully sniff at it. And the final verse is verse 14. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. I get the last part of this first chapter. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among all the nations. I'll, care, I'll, I'll call you up. I got a little more. I'm not quite done yet. It's only 1230, isn't it? No, I'm getting, I'm getting there. Okay. My name is to be feared among all the nations. I just share with you the what the what of this text. And the so what is part of that that help, helps you to know a little bit about what it means. Now I'm coming to the now what. And the now what is just how I want to apply it. Normally I, I work the application throughout the message, but I want to share with you my big idea. It's this. Because of his great name, 
God wants me to honor him with excellence in my service, worship, and obedience. Because of his great name, wow, there it is. They even put it in capital letters. God wants me to honor him with excellence in my service, worship, and obedience. I am called to excellent service for an excellent God. This passage has had a telling effect on my life and ministry. I was in Hollywood, Florida, which is just about maybe 10, 12 miles south of Fort Lauderdale. The best church I ever had in my entire life in 41 years of ministry. Uh, these people still stay in contact. And that was a long time ago. We hear about it when people pass on. But I was there about six years, saw wonderful blessing, wonderful relationships, significant church growth. And then I decided to move. And I went to Detroit, Michigan. And uh, I'm saying this for the benefit of Ben Bacon. I, I rooted for the Detroit Lions. When I arrived in Michigan, the roof was leaking. The Sunday school superintendent would call a meeting. But everyone would sit there 20 to 30 minutes waiting for him to arrive. A teacher would arrive 15 minutes late to teach the class. And so we're babysitting the kids in the Sunday school class. The choir would murder the number. We didn't have, we didn't have a Scott in our church for quality music. The organist would make 10 or more mistakes while playing through the offertory. We couldn't find a pianist who would play with any regularity. And from this church, the denomination planted a church. They planted a church. The Christian and Missionary Alliance, this was Madison Heights Alliance in, in Detroit, Michigan. They planted a church, and they said, they sent it out to all of the Alliance churches all across the country, and they said, this is how you do a church plant. This is how a church plant ought to be done. So what was not known was that this church plant, I think it was some, maybe Kim is this right, about 13, 15 miles north of us in Detroit. This, this church plant took all of my leadership. And so when I got there, all the leaders are going to the church plant. The shower door in the parsonage, we had a parsonage then, had cracked glass, and so I asked the deacons if they would please get it fixed. It didn't happen, and didn't happen until my wife cut herself in the door, and then we got it fixed. Of course, I inherited the staff. You know, in the Alliance, when you go take another church, you can, you can dismiss the staff and hire your own staff if you're the senior pastor, but I, I don't like to do that. I like to see what, what the staff would do. So I inherited the staff. After leaving some years later, I read in the newspaper that the youth pastor there, who had gone on to be the senior pastor of another church, I'm in Lancaster now, and I'm looking at the paper, and I'm seeing my youth pastor robbed 14 banks in 16 months. I won't tell you what he did with the money, but, uh, you know, I, I read that, and, and here's, here's the funny part of that. I don't really tell this to everybody, but the youth pastor was also part of one of the district committees. I think it was Christian Education. So the Christian Education Committee met, <laughs> and the bank president comes in. A bank president comes in. They said, well, you look kind of sour today. What's wrong? I said, my bank was robbed last night. And the guy that did it is sitting right there in the meeting. 
So why am I telling you that? I went away to a Bible conference uh, in Michigan, Maranatha Bible Conference in Muskegon. Uh, the speaker was preaching on Malachi, and I heard Malachi chapter 1, and my whole thinking and my perspective was changed forever by this single chapter in the Bible. And I saw that every day that we had something in that church, we were offering God a blemish sacrifice. The lack of excellence embarrassed me to death. I could not stand the haphazard way of doing things, the sloppiness, and I came to realize that I had to either get out of there or die in the vine. So I said to my wife, I can no longer do this. We got to go. <clears throat> Probably only there maybe a year and a half. At that point, I left the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. I took a church in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, called Congregational Bible Church of Marietta. Wonderful church. That was a great church where they desired to serve Jesus Christ with excellence. And God blessed subsequent ministries in Lancaster County, including after six years at CBC, investing my life in LCBC. And it all began with Malachi. When I came to the conclusion that I would not offer Jesus Christ anything less than my best, this sermon today is my offering him the best. Maybe it's not that good, but it's my best. Everything we do for Jesus Christ ought to be the best we can do. You give him your best. You don't offer him a blemish sacrifice. So through the sermon at the Bible conference, Maranatha, and my experience at Madison Heights Alliance Church in Detroit, I began to deal at that point with some of the vestiges of my own mediocrity in ministry. No longer giving God leftovers, but making rather an effort to serve him with excellence. That became the what now of today's sermon back then. You say, well, that's, uh, that's really a neat story, Pastor, but uh, hmm. in Malachi 1, they're talking about the priest, and I'm not a priest, and I'm not a pastor, so none of that that you talked about today really applies to me. This passage is for preachers, not parishioners, right? Sorry. <laughs> Put 1 Peter 2.9 up on the screen. Here it is. But you are a chosen race. You are a what? You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a priesthood people, and you are to proclaim his excellencies, and that means excellent service. That means that you serve him with respect and with honor and without blemish sacrifices. You know what the saddest words in the English language are? That's good enough. We've all said it. That's good enough. No. Everything we do for Jesus Christ ought to be the best we can do. It ought to be done with excellence. I have to add this. Please don't get confused because people do. I'm not talking about professionalism. We got too much of that in the church already today. Not talking about that. I'm just saying 
you're giving Jesus Christ your best. And I'm not talking also about perfectionism. If only you knew how many times I've decided that I'm going to get rid of the trumpet. I'm going to give it up. You know, remember we did a Christmas Eve service at GT Church here a number of years ago. There were, I think there were four trumpet, trumpeters up on the stage with me. And the, the program, which lasted for seven nights, started on a high C. And so you had to just pick this high C out of middle air, which is high for the trumpet. And I think we did pretty well the first five nights. Something happened on the sixth night. I think I missed my note. But I had these other guys playing too, so the fact that it turned out to be a B-flat instead of a C didn't sound too bad. But, you know, I just gave that up. I just said, look, if I'm going to miss a note on the trumpet, I'm not going to miss it halfway. I'm going to miss it good, you know. So watch out for perfectionism. I know the lamb placed on the altar should be the finest of the flock without spot and blemish, but God knows, God knows that we're not perfect. We're earthen vessels. We're clay pots. So that even when we've done our best, it will still not be perfect. So don't get in bondage to that. The issue is whether you have given to God your best whether it's a reflection of the best that you can give, you don't offer to the Lord that which cost you nothing. The offerings that the priest placed upon the altar, listen, were valueless to the people that put them there. God always values the offering by what it costs the man who brings it, never by its intrinsic worth. Remember when Jesus sat and watched the people of his day casting their offering into the temple. Remember that story? And he's watching this, and all of a sudden he sees this widow that throws in two mites. And what did he say? He didn't say she's done well. He didn't say she's done better than any man. What he said is she has cast in more than they all. He says, if you bring all the gifts that have fallen into the treasury today, you put them all together in the heart of God, these two mites given by this widow in God's balances outweighs them all. So I'm saying to you, whatever you do, be committed to excellence. That's our God. You, you say, what do you mean that's our God? I'm saying that the way you do things for Jesus Christ always reflects on who Jesus Christ is. Did you notice that last verse? Malachi 1.14, I'm a great God, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among all the nations. My name, what's God concerned about? His reputation, my name. The cure for sloppy service is a recognition of who Jesus Christ is. He is our father and a son honors his father. He is our master and a servant honors his master. Uh, if I'm a father, he says, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? The big idea of this sermon that I'd like you to take away with you is because of his great name, God asks for only an offering of excellence in service, in worship, and obedience because at stake is his reputation. Give him your best. Honor him. Let's be a royal priesthood that puts the kind of service that enhances his reputation 
at the top of the deck. It was A.W. Tozer, who was an Alliance pastor, who said this, the first step down for any church is when it surrenders its high view of God. If there's one thing Malachi teaches, it says, you had better respect God. You had better value him. You had better think highly of him. You better honor him. You better give him your very best and not just your leftovers. Vance Habner, the great Southern Baptist evangelist, said the last word of our Lord to the church is not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is indeed our program to the end of the age, but our Lord's last word to his church is repent. We should be blushing. We should be repenting. Ezra's statement in, in chapter 9, verse 6 can help us get started. Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our, our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Scott, you can go up. One last word. By Melvin Lorenzen. And he reminds us of this. We must stress excellence over against mediocrity done in the name of Christ. We must determine to put our best into the arts so that when we sing a hymn about Jesus and his love, when we erect a building for the worship of God, when we stage a play about the soul's pilgrimage, when we preach the word of God to our people, when we serve him, we will be committed to excellence because we're a royal priesthood and we serve an excellent God. And we're called to show forth his excellencies. Let's sing.